Jesus busts his disciples doing something his followers do best, arguing with one another. They're arguing about which one of them was the greatest. We kick off part one of a series called Peace with One Another this week. I'm Pastor Jason Barnett, and this is the Dirt Pastor Men Podcast. All right, open your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 9. What does it mean to be great in our world? Some define it as someone who can put a ball through a hoop. Uh, Others would say it's someone who can drive a car real fast and make left turns the best. Another group would point to a quarterback who is able to lead his team up and down the field. Tossing the ball every which way. Now, I know I used a bunch of uh, athletic and sports-related ideas of greatness, but this applies to even more than this. That. And the problem with great, defining greatness by, by these terms is that greatness in any arena is short-lived. Eventually, someone can put a ball through a hoop better than you. You do really good driving fast and turning left until one day you turn right instead. A quarterback can toss a ball all over the field, but he must put a little less air in them to keep up with the younger ones. See, greatness in these areas is short-lived. Now, I know this series is titled Peace with One Another, and you're probably wondering, what does this have to do with that title? What does greatness have to do with the idea of peace with one another? And that is our question for today as we look at this passage in Mark chapter 9. The 12 disciples are in a dispute about who is the greatest. And as we will read, Jesus turns the natural way of thinking upside down. Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. They came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, Jesus asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had been arguing about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last, and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now remember, as we study this passage, We are trying to answer the question, what does greatness have to do with peace with one another? And peace with one another is something we all need to be seeking in our turbulent times. So let's dig through this passage to find our answer. All right, let's look at verses 33 through 34. And it says, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. There's a verse that says, where two or three are gathered together in his name, there is most certainly a disagreement of some sort. Well, I believe the verse goes something like that. Anyway, Jesus overhears his disciples, and they're arguing about amongst one another. Not only does Jesus overhear their bickering, he calls them out on the, contents, on the contents of the disagreement. He knows these guys were arguing about who was the, the greatest among them. Remember, immediately before this moment, Peter, James, and John had been picked up to follow Jesus to the mountain 
to witness tra his transfiguration. And while they were up on the mountain, the other disciples tried to cast out a demon, but failed. Now, this is only speculation on my part, but but it's 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 not hard to imagine a disagreement arising from these situations. But it could have been from uh, among any other things that that brought this conversation up. But anyway, the twelve, the, they when Jesus confronts them and, and calls them out on the disagreement, they they do not respond at all to Jesus' question. It's, they don't respond not because they don't hear him; they most certainly heard him. They are choosing to remain silent because the twelve know there is a dis, their disagreement. The reason why they are arguing is foolish. They know it's not something; it's not a topic, a conversation that Jesus is going to approve of. So, being called out on such silliness left them feeling embarrassed and choosing to be quiet to prevent any further humiliation. Now let's look at verse 35, and it says, Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Notice what Jesus does before instructing the twelve on this matter. He sits down. He, he sits down. It's almost like, hey, come on, fellas, pop a squat, because we're going to be here for a minute. And let's be honest, as we study the, the Gospels, we realize that the disciples, they just don't always get the picture. Uh, they, they they fall short in their understanding many, many times. And so in this moment, Jesus, this is an important moment. And Jesus does not want to ignore the content of the, the conversation because it's a teaching point for them. So Jesus tells them, hey, guys, Jesus sits down and, and, and kind of lets his disciples know we're going to camp here for a minute. and We're going to talk about this. We're going to sort through this teaching. And so they gather around him. Now, the problem with the disciples was they were viewing this idea of greatness through the natural human perspective. This, When I say the natural human perspective, this is the way of the world. This is the way you and I were born to look at this idea of greatness. But we've lived in a world that has that has this as its definition. This is, So we, you and I, just like the disciples, we are affected by this idea of greatness. And this idea of greatness that they're chasing is, is really at the core of our understanding, which is survival of the fittest. And that's what greatness is. The greatness is the survival of the fittest. This belief is that to be the greatest means you are the most powerful, you have the most resources, you're the most notable, and any other way you can be can, can be considered at the top of the list. While this is how the kingdoms of this world operate, it is not how the kingdom of the Messiah does things. The way we as human beings define greatness is not the same definition that God uses to define greatness. Greatness is, the greatness in the kingdom is not measured by the methods of violence or unethical practices. To be great in the eyes of God is not lording over others, but dignifying the humanity of others and being humble enough to serve them. So moving on from that teaching point, Jesus goes on in verses 36 and 37. He says, and it, it reads this way. It says, Jesus took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. At first glance, we believe that Jesus is teaching children in these verses, or he's teaching us on children in these verses. Uh, and while these while these two verses will certainly apply to kids and, and 
that's not what the point of the message uh, of the of this lesson is. Verse thirty six and thirty seven in, in this passage is an illustration to the point Jesus is making in verse thirty five. Did I even read verse thirty five? Um, yeah, I said verse thirty five. It told us uh, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last, and um, and the servant of all. So that's when Jesus has him sit down. He tells him, if you want to be first in my kingdom, you you must be the very last and serve everyone else. And so that is the Jesus in 36 and 37. He takes the child to illustrate the point he is making in verse 35. Um, again, it's not as if you study the, the Gospels at all. I am not trying to say that Jesus is not for kids. He's not in support of children, that he doesn't like them. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is right here in this passage, we cannot take this passage right here and use it to validate that about Jesus. And in a a way, yes, it does point to Jesus' love for children and and his value and seeing them as important pieces of the kingdom of God. But here he's trying to make an overall point using the child. Um, Now, part of the reason why we lose sight of this in this passage is we we take into the reading of of this section and, and other verses like it sometimes. Our, our modern understanding, we, we take the modern setting that we're living in and we apply it to the ancient world where, the, where this event takes place and where this teaching takes place. In our modern setting, uh, we, we see children as innocent. Um, we see them as passionate and truthful. Uh, easy, they, they forgive easy. They love easy. They don't give up on us as quickly as we give up on, one, uh, give up on other people. Uh, that's that's just that's what it means to be a kid. They believe, but they believe when there's no reason to believe at all. They have hope, and they have no reason to have hope at all. That's just the way kids are. Um, now that being said, uh, we as the church, we have a responsibility to stand up for life. We have a responsibility to stand up for the children, to stand up for for um, the life of children. That means as Christians, we should be against. Abortion. We should not be for it. Now, at the same time, too, when I say that, we should also be for the life of the mother. And let's not forget that somewhere in the story, in the creation of this child, uh, that there is a is a father involved as well. All three of those lives matter. Um, but as a Christian, we we need to take a stand against things where it is harmful to those who have no voice. Now, at the same time, too. Uh, that also can apply right now too. We cannot, we can, we, you know, as Christians, we should not be standing back idly by and allowing um, our kids to be trafficked. We should not be uh, encouraging that. We should not be for that. We should not be proud of that. Uh, when it comes to keeping children safe, we should not be harboring secrets about people in our families or in our churches who are who are predators toward children. No, if we are if we're going to be for children like we say we are, we need to take a stand in the faith and expose that sin for what it is, and and let the, let justice take its course. But again, that's not the, now back to our texture. That's not the point Jesus is making right here. Um, I guess in a roundabout way he is, but that, but to look at it that that way through our modern understanding would, would kind of discredit the, the the point Jesus is trying to make. Now, for us to properly understand how powerful this image is and this illustration Jesus is using with his disciples is to realize how the children were viewed in the historical setting where this narrative actually takes place. 
at the during the time of Jesus' teaching of his disciples, children were invisible. They were considered non-person. When we read in scripture about the count of the feeding of the five thousand or four thousand, children are not counted because they are not considered people yet. Uh, you have to survive to earn that right to be considered a person. Um, and so because children were invisible and they were non-persons, they certainly had no place at the feet of a rabbi. And they should, should definitely not be participating in the, in the instructions. And the instruction or the teaching portion of that, kids have moms for that purpose. And so moms were very, you know, women were barely treated above cattle in this society. And children, they were just invisible. They didn't really exist at all. They were to not be seen and not to be heard. And they were considered unimportant. So Jesus taking this child and placing him among them was a scandalous act. Jesus took someone who society considered invisible, unimportant, and said to to welcome them. The point he was trying to make to us that he, he when he when he says in verse thirty five of of who if anyone wants to be first he must be the very last and the servant of all. He takes this child. To tell us that to be the greatest in the kingdom of God is to have a heart willing to serve those who are invisible, considered a waste of time by the world. We are to we are to look at those people and, con- and and consider them human beings just like us. We don't look at them and feel sorry for them. We don't look at them and, and look our down our noses upon them. We don't look at them to to prop ourselves up. We look at them in genuine love. And dignify them with recognizing them as another living, breathing, and human being. And that's what it means to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Now, by the natural human standard, achieving greatness is to obtain a crown of power. The natural human standard for greatness is to scale to the highest ranks and grab the brightest stars. There's no time for us to be humble and serve the weaker ones, like Jesus tells us to, let alone the invisible. It's survival of the fittest out there. So if you take time away from making yourself better, that leaves the potential for you to be at the bottom. One this step away from disappearing. That is the natural human approach to greatness, the survival of the fittest. And so that that is what drives us. That's what causes us to, to grab and want more and to, to try and get to the top and try to stay there and to do whatever it takes to get to the top and stay there. Because we know we'll, if we are always one step away from not being relevant. Now, unfortunately, th- this natural human standard for achieving greatness, we take that and we use it in our own lives. Our natural way to navigate this world is by the following condition mentioned above. This means our focus is on, I have to defend my rights. Because if I don't defend my rights, then someone will, will come and take it away. Or I have to speak loud enough to make, my, make sure I'm heard. Because if we don't shout loud enough, then no one will know our ideas, will know our ideas are important. And no matter how you spin this, the, the natural human pursuit of greatness, the way that you and I pursue greatness is trying to cover up and trying to fill two of the deepest needs of, of, of humanity. Each person has a deep need for these two things in their lives. Deep down, we are all chasing a need to be validated in our accomplishments and feel valued in our existence. The problem is, 
when we use the human definition of greatness, when we make that our focal point and the thing that we chase after, and we use the means of this world to chase after it, to try and fill those two deep basic human needs, what ends up happening is we use others to fill those needs. They only exist in our lives because we need them to fill those needs that those needs of feeling validated and feeling valued in our existence. And as long as some people, certain people are in our lives and they fill those voids for us, we will keep them around. But the second that they fall short or the second they stop filling our needs, we don't need them anymore. So we cast them aside. Or worse yet, if, if we're not using them to fill our needs, we're using other people as the barometer to tell where we are at in our own lives. We use them as our competition to judge whether we are good or whether we are bad. We, 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 use, we look at other people and determine, well, you know what? I must be doing this Christian thing right because, you know what? At least I'm not in jail. Hey, I must be living a life honoring God because at least I got money in my bank account. Hey, I must be living my, my life honoring God because at least I'm not hooked on drugs. I, I, you know, God must love me and must bless, you know, keep, be blessing me because I don't have to stand in line at the soup kitchen to get food. So, we, see, instead of, we, we, because we are desperately trying to feel validated and because we're desperately wanting to be valued in our existence, we use other people or we look at them and set, use them to judge whether or not we are successful. The problem with, with the way of the world in our way of thinking is that this is not God's way. This is not how God does it. This is not the method of the kingdom. God did not design you or I to exist in this manner. Since this is not how we were, we are designed, that means peace is not possible in our own hearts by following it, nor is peace with other people. Because it's a system built on using others and comparing ourselves to them. Therefore, there can be no bond of peace between us. It can't happen in that type of environment. And then, and at the same time, there's no peace in our own hearts because we know that if we do not keep pressing forward, if we don't, if we, ha we have to take time to stop and help others out, if we take time to, to slow down, it, it leaves room for us to fall back to the bottom and to miss out and disappear from relevance, falling well short of this idea of us being great. That's not God's way, though. God didn't call us to live that way. Matter of fact, the way of Jesus is reckless love, and it's reckless love that demonstrates peace to others. And that's the life that God has designed us for. That is the life that God's called us to. You see, God already loves you. There is nothing you or I could do to make him love us any more or less. His love reveals our value as children of God. Think about it. God thought loves you so much. God thought you were so worth it that he was willing to come down and take up life on this planet to live, to be rejected, to be spit upon, to be mocked, to be rejected. He loved you so much to come and, and go through that. And even more yet, he, lo he loved you enough to come and die on a cross for you. That's how valuable you are to God. You are the world to God. His love reveals our value as children of God, which means 
Because we are children of God, we also have a Father that always hears us. There is not a prayer that leaves your lips that God does not hear. God is always listening because he loves to hear from his children. And on top of that, God is proud of us because we are his. He's, he's not proud because of the things we've done. He's not be proud, be proud of how big our churches are or how many times we reread our Bible. God is proud of us because we are simply his children. That's it. He loves you because you are his, and he's proud of you because you are, you are his. And those are the two basic needs of humanity that need to be validated is searching for that someone that is proud of us and that's willing to say that someone that's proud of us and that we are, are the things that we do have meaning and purpose. At the same time, too, the other need is we are searching for value and the love of God tells us how much we are valued. Those basic needs of being valued and validated are met by God himself. And because God meets those needs, it removes our need to use other people or compete with them. And since those needs were met, are more than met. Because this, the, 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 when you study scriptures, the one thing you'll realize, and this is uh, there's a famous Christian theologian out there by the name of Karl Barth. And at one time he was asked, what's the most... What is the most astounding truth that you have ever learned throughout all your studies and all your research of the Bible? And his answer was, Jesus loves me, this I know. And this is why he says that. Because the love of God is immeasurable. You can't qualify it. You can't quantify it. It is beyond our comprehensions. It goes deeper than we could ever dream of or imagine. And so because God's love is this amazing thing in our lives, this thing that we can experience, it's, it more than meets our needs. And since those, it more than meets those needs of being validated and valued in our lives, we become free to love recklessly as Jesus loves. So not only does God's love love us, does God love us, but his love has the power to transform how we see our other people, to how we treat them in our relationships. When our heart is full of the love of God, when he fills our hearts and our minds with his love, it transforms us from needing to compete with the other people around us or from needing to use them to, to, to fill those two deep needs of our, of our being. It takes that away in that relationship. The thing that causes tension is that, and takes away our peace in our relationship is this need to validate ourselves and need to be to be valued by the other person. But when God's already met those needs in your life and you don't need that from other, per other people, you are free to love them, to love them exactly the way that Jesus loves them. This is holy love and holy love is the way to peace with one another. So what does greatness have to do with peace with one another? What, what the two have in common is this. I need to be last for peace to have a chance. I don't have to have the credit to be important. My ideas don't have to be liked, approved, and followed to find validation. The things I accomplish do not need to be praised for me to feel valued. God so loved me that he died for me. The very least I can do for him is to use my life to serve you. Can you say those things? 
To have peace with one another, you must have peace in your own heart. And to have peace in your own heart is to quit seeking greatness the natural way, using and competing with others to find validation and value. No, God loves you, values you, and is proud to call you his child. The real question is, is his love enough for you? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Dirt Pass Sermon Podcast. If you would like prayer or have a message for me, please uh, use the link in the show notes that says connection card. A uh, special thank you to, to the Greensburg Church of the Nazarene for allowing me to be their pastor and to share this message with all of you.